Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, today we have Christian Nadsbier. He's a professor of applied humanities at the New School and co-founder of the pioneering consultancy uh, Red Associates, a strategy consulting company based in the human sciences and employing anthropologists, sociologists, art historians, and philosophers. Um, Christians has studied philosophy and political science in Copenhagen and London, and his latest book is called Sensemaking, The Power of the Humanities in the Age of the Algorithm. Welcome, Christian. Thank you, and, and thank you for pronouncing my surname correctly. <laughs> that was excellent. Uh, nobody does that, so thank you very much. <laughs> very much. Of course. We have to we have to give some respect, of course. You know? Well, yeah, no, but that was a really good job, man. Like, legit, you, he said it, and you right out of your mouth perfectly. <laughs> All right. So, you know, a lot of, I think, so the one thing I wanted to really talk about as we begin this, uh, this kind of our conversation is the movie Moneyball. So I love Moneyball, right? And then so, and I love the writer, I love Danny Kahneman, I love behavioral economics. So we learned so much from data. And the way we tend to think about data is that sort of it's the, um, it's sort of the thing that makes up for the flaw of human error, right? Mm -hmm. So we tend to think of like, on the one hand, there are these geniuses, you know, kind of like problem solve and tell us what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to think. But on the other hand, again, with the algorithms and data, they sort of make up for that, right? They make up for the misperception of this lone genius or the conception of, uh, of let's say, a human being who thinks that they know more than they actually do. Mm -hmm. So, but Christian, you found a way to kind of merge the two in a way that I, I think isn't too mainstream. Because when you think about something like money, ball, right? Uh, you know, going into the movie and the book, what we tend to think about is this character in, in the Brad Pitt character, the, the film and the Billy Bean person in real life, where he focused, focuses more on a system as opposed to sort of decision making in like personally, right? Decision making from, let's say, from experience, from intuition, we're talking about actual systems, right? So I wonder if, what from your perspective and thinking about sort of Moneyball, right? What is it that you kind of took away in it from sort of the other end, right? How did you see that as the flaw because initially we start off thinking well no no it's human reasoning that's the flaw and you know if we'll go into Danny Kahneman probably a little later and his whole thinking of noise and that there's all this noise in the system and then obviously you know we need kind of big data to make up for it and to correct it right but how did you get from the point that where you saw that okay here we are in this black and white way of thinking and we're seeing that no 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 it's human error and intuition and judgment that's the flaw right as opposed to you know algorithms and data which is like no 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 this is kind of like the holy grail of decision making and you in a way you kind of flipped it and then you said no 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 there's actually frailty and data too right you actually need somebody to interpret it because without it i mean you kind of really have nothing mm -hmm. so can you tell us a little bit about that like how did you actually see some of the flaws in big data and how did you come to understand that the human the human being in all of it actually needs to be a part of the decision making as well right i mean i'm a i'm a fan of humans uh mm -hmm. I, I think we are pretty extraordinary beings and i think our decision making process not perfect, but it's 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 pretty amazing if you look at just everyday activity. I was just driving down 13th Street in Manhattan, and um, if you look at that situation, there there is uh, a restaurant that's open, and people are standing in line and are kind of all over the place talking to each other. Then there's a construction site where people are drilling into the ground and people are moving around that construction site. Then you have steam coming out of the ground. 
uh, and then you have people behaving in sort of a Sunday uh, leisure way. And when you drive down the street of that, our judgment uh, can see probably how this, this, these things behave. We can see what's hard and what's soft. We can understand the concept of construction site, restaurant, waiting in line for restaurant. Uh, we understand what a Sunday, how a Sunday works. And if you imagine your machine and there are two people walking down the street and there's a truck and they, they go behind the truck. So the objects are no longer there. They're disappeared, but we somehow know that they'll reappear on the other side of that truck at some point, or they're mm -hmm. likely to, and we would we would sort of be able to sense um, if that's a threat or not, and whether we need to speed or not speed, and you know what to pay attention to. Um, so just driving down 13th Street is a pretty remarkable thing um, that um, the AI engineers have had a hard time fully fully get their arms around and sort of the idea of a generalized intelligence that can create cars with uh, no pedal and no steering wheel um, is still very far uh, into the future. And I think, so, so there's some, all I want to say was that there's something remarkable about humans. And if you look at the track, whatever, wherever you live, if you look at the traffic system, mm -hmm. every day, millions of cars go out in the street. We drive kind of weapons steel steel boxes and somehow we manage to go to where we want to go uh, uh, and of course there are traffic accidents and I, I just saw one um, but which is which is very unfortunate and and um, well a bad thing mm -hmm. but still millions of cars could get around and I, I, I don't know that the magic of driving is still for me uh, uh, incredible. Um, so, and that's because we understand holes. We understand the, the idea of what a school is and how all the behavior around school happens. And we sort of understand when we drive past the school, the behavior is connected to the idea of school or mm -hmm. construction site or steam coming out of the ground, which we know is soft, not hard mm -hmm. um, and so on. So I just think there's a lot of magic to humans and our ability to move around in the world and understand holes or, uh, you know, um, some people, some psychologists call it gestalts, right? That the, the whole of a school, say, the whole of 13th Street. Um, so, so first of all, I, I'm, I'm kind of up on humans and I, and, and I enjoy observing humans uh, and, and, and the extreme capacity our ability to judge and to move around the world. Um, so, so that was sort of the beginning. I thought there was a lot when I wrote the book, I thought there was a lot of hyperbole around, around data. Mm -hmm. and that data will take over this flawed, the flawed existence of humans. Um, and that humans were, you know, and that goes down to Kahneman, like you said, that, that we are noise and that statistics is way better than us. Um, yeah, it, it, certainly there are lots of situations where we, without statistics are completely lost and we don't understand proportions and we let emotions sort of run wild. And that's not always a very good idea, uh, but, but, but I'm still just enthralled with and, and, uh, admire human humans. Um, uh, and, and I don't see 
our decision making as noise. Um, I don't see what is it system system one and system two. System two, yeah. Yeah, I, I I don't think system two is better than system one. I think system one is incredibly exciting and and uh, wild that we can do those things. So I just you know Kahneman and and crowd were a little down on people and 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 I'm not um, as down <laughs> as, mm. as as sort of negative about it. Yeah, there's this sort of emergent harmony that that takes place with us that. Um, I could see that statistics couldn't necessarily boil down our behavior uh, because it's so com complexly wonderful and harmonic. Like, like you said, like East 13th Street, all the goings on. And, and yet, yes, there are traffic accidents and things of that nature, but there is something going on that's allowing for that system to, to exist, for the people to all get around, uh, for you to be aware of all these different variables. And as you say, AI, uh, general, generally intelligent AI, we are definitely years away from that. Um, that'll be interesting, though, I guess, when that comes up, not to, you know, get off on a tangent here. But yeah, imagine AIs as as creative as human beings with the processing power of AIs that that could be wonderful too. Mm -hmm. imagine uh, the emergent that that would yield, let's right. say, especially over time. Right, right, right. But yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Christian, this made me think in terms of like what philosophy has to offer. So there's this sort of mainstream, maybe not so mainstream, but maybe too mainstream understanding of philosophy as sort of a dead kind of endeavor, especially amongst kind of hard nosed materialists, where the idea is like, well, philosophy has already offered us everything that we could have. And, you know, all we really need is the data. So to me, that doesn't really make sense. And I'm not talking about like metaphysics or spiritual science or anything along those lines. But in terms of what philosophy has to offer, I mean, how is it that critical thinking can ever replace data and, you know, sort of materialistic thinking and science, uh, the scientific method? obviously, uh, it, because wouldn't the two need to work together? Don't you need an actual uh, thinker to, first of all, hypothesize based on limited data, and then after, you know, combining it with more data to create a, an actual theory and sort of place it into the world, then have it hopefully maybe challenged, uh, kind of validated, whatever happens, right? But the point is that when you take out the thinker, who's there to make sense of the data? Mm. Yes. Yeah, and who's going to start the, the inquiry in the first place? Right. Like machines you would have to have a machine that just opens its eyes and somehow figures out what's important and not important um, by consuming data, I suppose. Um, and, I, and I think the self-supervised learning systems that they're starting to experiment now would be, would be a hypothesis that's really interesting. Um, but let, let's start, like I'm science, I'm the biggest fan of science. I'm a huge fan of statistics. I can do some uh, myself um, and I'm not against that at all. Uh, but I think humans might be different than might. We don't know. And that's the annoying thing about philosophy. We would never say we know anything, um, but I, rarely. And, if, and, and the ones that do aren't maybe the best, um, but we humans are different than say wolves in the way that human wolves doesn't wake up in the morning and think about being more sort of fox-like today, mm -hmm. right? So they don't take a stand, you know, in philosophy we would say, they don't take a stand on their own being. Mm -hmm. They don't think about themselves as having identities. 
as far as we know. Right. Um, and we behave differently like bacteria or planets in the way that we change when, we, when somebody looks at us. Whereas bacteria behaves in the way that bacteria behaves, supposedly, when we look through a um, microscope, it, the bacteria doesn't behave differently just because we're looking. But mm -hmm. humans seem to do that. And right. that means that humans might be a different object of study or a different kind of phenomenon than, than, than what the natural science is used to. Um, now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't test hypotheses. It doesn't mean you shouldn't question uh, just philosophical statements because how do, how do they know? I mean, sh sh I'm, I think an empiricist in many, in many ways from a methodological standpoint. If it's just people's meandering thoughts sitting in an office in a university, then that has created enormous amounts of interesting ideas. But I don't think alone would, would, be, the, would be the best. Certainly, there's a lot of mistakes that's been made over the years. So, so I'm sort of, I think both, like you said, I think, I think we need what Charles Sanders calls abductive thinking. So that would be simmering in data and trying to create hypotheses based on it, often through observation, um, observing human life, and then create hypotheses that can then be tested at scale. And, and, and when you do that, statistics is one, what is today called AI, which as far as I understand is a very advanced version of statistics, mm -hmm. um, uh, just with enormous processing power and enormous data uh, sets, uh, which is super exciting. Um, but we need both. Um, and, and when I wrote that book, it was as if there were people and still are probably people that thought that human judgment is bad and noisy machines good and right cool. and it's just an annoying proposition and, and i just had too much of it <laughs> in a way and i wanted to defend the 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 study of humans in other ways than through empirical evidence uh no through large-scale statistical empirical evidence right um, because a historian or art historian works with evidence and em empirical observation as well uh, just in a different way yeah, and even what comes to mind when we're thinking about the data is even the data is often incomplete because what we're thinking about is like, let's say, I mean, I was going to use a Moneyball example, but I don't know too much about what actually goes beyond like behind sports data. So I don't want to get into this too much, but also like from what I do know a little bit about it is that like the data is always adjusted. So it's not that, you know, you just have like this sort of uh, ultimate data and mm -hmm. then, okay, now you know what's going to happen or how to make predictions. Like, no, no, the data is constantly adjusted because there's always new information. And when we're thinking about like Bayesian reasoning, right, where we're thinking about something along the lines of like a cancer diagnosis and we're saying, well, you know, there's a 95% frequency that let's say, you know, X diagnosis is going to be correct. However, you know, there's other data that we might not have. Like, what about the fact that this person is relatively healthy and, you know, let's say they have various years of blood tests that have come out pretty positive and they're also very young. And, you know, so what you're doing is you're saying to yourself, okay, how much is actually enough data and how do I actually know? But this is why you kind of have people who are, you know, kind of hardline stati statisticians where they're saying, no, 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 the data can tell you everything. And then you have other people when they kind of ask on the other end, but like, again, how do you know, how do you know that it's enough data and how do you know that you need more? And I'm not really sure that that question has been answered. Right. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Let's take, let's talk about sports for a second. Mm -hmm. It's probably the most important thing in the world in the end, right? Kids, mm -hmm. sports. But how good are those moneyball teams? Mm -hmm. I mean, 
the what is it the San Francisco baseball team that he admires so much? Are they that good? I'm not into. Well, it, it was it was it was the Oakland A's in the in the book and the for, for a little while they were pretty good and and they were yeah. performing above, uh, you know what they should have. But if you take if if you look at football like a real football in Europe, like you know or Brazil or somewhere, uh, where people play what Americans call soccer, what really uh, correlates what what what's a function of success? Well. Over the years, it's how much money do you have? So how many shirts do you sell and how many TV rights do you sell? Rather than the statistical models of the, of the, of the people that buy and sell players. Um, and, and Barcelona is a pretty good team. And I don't think they're a money ball team. Uh, Real Madrid, pretty good team, not money ball team. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't think you can say reasonably that the people that have advanced statistics are by and large overperforming. I think I think uh, uh, that would be untrue. Um, so it's not that easy to just say the Oakland A model is better than other models. Um, what is cool about it was that they took on uh, easy answers, right? So uh, uh, baseball players have to look like athletes. That's an easy answer because they might not have to right. look like easy answers, like look like um, athletes. A lot of great athletes are not the stereotypical sort of look that a that a that a that a coach would like and mm -hmm. that was that was such a brave and cool attitude but then saying taking from that and saying everything ought to be moneyball uh, and that all i don't think that's true um i think there's a lot of wisdom and man management and psychology and all kinds of stuff involved that's not about how many uh, how many hits you have per how many expected goals per 90 or whatever whatever they call uh, so there's more so, to it that's right uh what, what would you say is the sort of the best way to sort of sense make a, a, at least in the context of a sports team like uh, this this is at least what i get at least uh, impulsively I, I think of uh, the morale of the team right what you could even think of the diet of the team or one particular player does one particular player have a situation going on in their family or is everything okay not just how many you know times were they at bat and hit the ball and right. how many runs there there are so many different factors to take into consideration age is, age yeah. age um is is this so i, I know i'm sort of uh making it a little obvious here but i guess for our audience to sort of distill it when we're sense making we have to take into consideration far more variables than we may traditionally right in order to right yeah we sense. can use data to like predict I think yeah and, right. and we can't trust the data 100 percent right, right. right yeah and, and some of it is about style and beauty right. right one team plays differently than others a lot of people are attracted to that aesthetic or that style of playing which means that they buy their shirts and watch their matches and and mm -hmm. that's not that's not as simple as boiling it down to aesthetic now, another example would be, well, it all comes down to what some philosophers call worlds or gestalts, right? It comes down to the way we humans perceive the world. And mm -hmm. we, I think, perceive the world in wholes. So the, whole, the, the world of theater um, or the world of jazz or the world of, um, you know, EDM. 
Yeah. And you know, if you if you on a piano, if you hit middle C on a piano, uh, it's I think 440 hertz, and and that that hits your eardrum. But if that 40 uh, you know 440 hertz hit your eardrum in one in the world of jazz, it sounds completely different than if you hear it the same note in the world of EDM, mm. right? So how do we hear 440 hertz, which is a hard data point, right? It's something, mm -hmm. it's a measurable data point. Well, it doesn't matter because it fits into a world, the, let's say the world of jazz, where middle C on a piano is connected to the whole world of jazz and the history of it and the kind of instruments that plays and the style of it. And the, you know, some people like it. I happen to like it. Some people find it boring and, you know, weird. Uh, so, so you could say, you could say you could take music or you could take sports or you could take it, you know, the style of football. You could take that down to Hertz or, you know, or, uh, or ex expected goals per 90 minutes. But it also is in a world of a particular style and, and we perceive, we humans perceive the world that way, which is different from a machine. And, uh, and, and, and a very difficult, at least we still haven't seen a machine yet that can do that. And that doesn't mean the machines are bad. It just means they're different. Um, and it means that the metaphor for AI of being like humans that the goal is to build a machine that's like a human seems silly to me. Why would you want to do that? Why don't you want to make tools for humans? Why don't you want to make um, uh, uh, things that can do things that humans can't do, but that are not like us? And so, so this idea of worlds is a is a is from you know Gestalt psychology in the 1910s and 20s and 30s, and it's from Martin Heidegger in late 20s, um, who's maybe the biggest, the philosopher of worlds. Um, it, it, there's already in Pascal, uh, you know, um, several hundred years earlier, this idea that humans perceive the world in a very particular way. And, and for me, that's a beautiful thing. And it it's, has a lot to do with aesthetic and style and, well, lifestyle, I suppose we call it. Um, and it's hard to break down into sound waves or, or something like that. Of course, there are sound waves. And of course, our eardrums hear it. But, but the same sound wave can mean completely different things, uh, depending on the world it's in. Uh, yeah. And the, the, the thought that comes to mind is how, and how limited of, uh, so I don't know how much you, I mean, I know Alan knows a little bit about like mental health apps, like, you know, like how, if let's say you want like a CBT therapy app, you can just, you know, download it and they'll give you all of the tools for it. Right. So a lot of times people think like, oh, this is such a great substitute for therapy and like that other, uh, better help, like, uh, what is it? It's also like sort of a therapy app, but in this case, you could sort of talk to therapists sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, like all of these kind of apps, right. The understanding was that the apps were going to revolutionize mental health because they were going to spread mental health care, you know, to the rest of the world to, you know, under kind of represented and underprivileged populations. Great sure. idea, right? Phenomenal. But what we actually see is that like the retention rate for these apps is something along the lines of like 3%. So what that means is that they'll, people will download the app. They'll kind of like fiddle around with it. They'll use it for a couple of days and then they'll stop using it. Right. And so it begs the question of like, well, what did you want to ask? 
Go for it. I'll say that. Okay. So, and it sort of begs the question of like, okay, but how is that so, right? Because technically, if you're going to therapy, you're pretty much getting the same service, right? So if let's say I go on psychology today, I want to find a cognitive behavioral therapist, you know, I schedule my appointment, I go through these sessions, let's say two, three sessions, right? They're virtually going to be the exact same sessions that you would have learning the tools and using the tools on the apps, right? So what are sort of these intangibles? What are we missing? These are the kind of big questions, right? And I mean, at this point, it's pretty speculative. I don't think anything, anything can be said concretely, but my hunch is that when we're thinking about those intangibles, the human connection is super important because first of all, number one, when we think about depression, when we think about using an app for depression, the idea is like, so when people come into therapy, they often think along the lines of, well, this is my, just my therapist, right? They're just saying what, what, what they're, I'm, what I'm paying for, right? What I'm supposed to be hearing. So that's what you get with the apps. You're like, okay, this app is sort of like, you know, a friend or whatever, just telling me what I want to hear. Um, you're not really getting the validation for new or corrective beliefs. I mean, you can get an app to tell you like, oh, hey, like good job on doing this. But also an app can't really tell you whether or not you reframe the thought. I mean, I, I don't even think uh, I don't even think that they have apps that do that. I think they might like congratulate you on completing like a thought record where you go from like, let's say a distorted thought, then you go to the emotion, you go to evidence for evidence against, then you reframe the thought. I'm assuming there's some sort of like, you know, kind of uh, reward for let's say completing it, but no app can actually tell you whether you completed it in the right way. So I think you do need a therapist for that, right? And then also just the fact that here's this person who's willing to stick it out with you, despite how difficult therapy may be for the both of you. I think that's also really important. And then on top of that, there may be throw-ins that let, let's say are not particularly part of like manualized CBT or ACT therapy that are obviously not part of the apps. But I do think it's a really interesting question that on the one hand, there's this really great incentive to think, okay, if we can get therapy to more people, obviously, you know, mental health will improve, which it surely will. But on the other hand, and what the data shows is, again, the retention rate is incredibly low. Okay, mm. so I just want to add something. Uh, so I, you're, you're, you're correct. There probably is something that we're missing that would allow for a greater retention rate for, for these uh, people trying these apps or doing these telehealth services. But what I would say is that um, how one variable to take into consideration is how long have these apps been out? Decent amount of time now. But maybe uh, uh, how many years would you say? Maybe 10 at this point. Okay. Yeah. Now, 10 years sounds like a lot of time, yeah. right? But uh, in the you know in the context, just objectively speaking, maybe it's not actually a lot of time. Okay. What if, you know, whatever percentage of people that are being helped by it is still significant to those particular people? Oh, in yeah, that yeah. Particular yeah. Just world. to be clear, I'm not against the apps. I'm just, yeah. I, no, no, yeah. I'm with you. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to say is that even though the statistic that we have available at the moment is that there is a, did you say 3% yeah, retention? Something rate? like that on average. Yeah. I mean, at one point when these apps didn't exist, there was no retention rate, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that it, again, what you're talking about is sort of correcting for that and seeing what are we missing, right? Yeah, yeah. I, asking I agree why, with that. Right? Why is the, why, why asking why the technology is itself not enough, right? Totally with that. Uh, that's definitely a good hunch to have, a good intuition and something to uh, work towards. But then again, uh, there, the there are people who probably are getting yeah. uh, value from it, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I wonder what would happen given more time, given more yeah. time for, 
that influence to sort of uh, spread for people to find right. out but, more but about But also it. like to add on to that, and this is my uh, going to be my question yeah. for you, Christian, right? Yeah. So what is it that like we are, are actually missing though, right? Why is it that the apps themselves, so even if we were to give them time, right? Wouldn't we have to actually look at what factors are missing, why they're not working, right? So meaning that it's not like we just give it time. We have to figure out what's not working with them. And so for you, Christian, right? I would wonder if you had a hunch, what would you think it is? Uh, I mean, first of all, a 3% retention rate could be many things. It could be that it, it works for, like it worked for 97% uh, and they don't need it anymore. True. Which I think is unlikely, uh, mm -hmm. but, but it could be. But I would think that if there's a retention rate of 3%, that probably means it's not working right, for people. Right. And there could be a thousand reasons for that. Uh, it could be that people are pretty lonely right now and an app is not enough. Um, and that human connection uh, can't be substituted by the, the mechanical voice of an app. Uh, and it could be that the solutions are many things and that one of the things can be an app. So I, I, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist and I, I'd rather not say anything conclusive <laughs> about those things, but a parallel might be education. Uh, you know, it's, it's quite clear now I think that we've had lots of our kids trained at scale uh, for, for a while, right? They're, they're training platforms and, and um, in the last three years. Um, and, and you've had kids either masked up uh, or, or literally on screens for a while. And we also knew from Coursera and other other platforms like that that the retention rate is or the, or the or the failure rate is extraordinarily high. People find it, even though it's the best professors in the world and it's the same information being transmitted, it feels, you know, I don't know what it feels like, but it's not successful um, in terms of learning or teaching anybody anything. Um, and if you're a teacher like like I am sometimes it's pretty obvious that the learning happens between people, uh, not in a in a in a one-to-one -one transmission between one professor and a million students. Um, that doesn't mean it's not a bad idea. I mean, if, if I came from a place where there were no teachers, I would prefer to have Coursera over not having Coursera. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I if I didn't have access to any mental health services um, or couldn't get access to any mental health services, I would prefer to have you know, the best version of, of, of online or technologically mediated uh, help than no help. So, right. so, so, so I think the parallel might be education and we can see on the, on the, on the results the last three years that it ain't good. Um, uh, and, uh, and that there are other aspects to education that it just doesn't capture. Right. And I would say one of those are the, not the extracurriculars, but the intracurriculars, the, the having a class, but having other people try to work through these topics in a very physical way in the same room, struggling through sort of texts or problems or, um, you know, particular topics. Um, at least that's what, what I've seen with my students. Um, Right. And, and over, overarching all of this is people are, have been, and are incredibly lonely. Um, it's just palpable uh, after the last two years. And that's not technology's fault, uh, it is, but it's the case. Um, and I think humans can feel that and can see that on each other. Um, I don't, I'm not sure 
you can of course follow statistics and you can see how many people like self-harm or hospitalization or suicide or you know attempts and and so on you can see the results of it but understanding it you need to be a human i think really deeply understanding why other people feel the way they feel you need to ex ex understand their experience and perceive their experience and until now i'm not sure we have artificial intelligence that's able to do that and, and that might be what you see in that number that that it just doesn't get it and machine doesn't care yet like humans care uh, right. about each other machines frankly doesn't give a damn in the human sense of caring right. um, and, and in particularly in mental health that seems pretty important <laughs> that, that the people you're involved with care uh, about what's going on right and, and i would maybe even add on to that to say that maybe that's the distinction that on the one hand with the machine you're thinking to yourself okay well this is what the machine is trained to say right so of course it's going to pump out sort of you know happy motivational sort of quotes or whatever right as opposed to when we're thinking about a therapeutic alliance i can know after some time that i can trust that my therapist isn't full of shit that he or she is actually telling me not what i want to hear but more so what i need to hear and hopefully reality as opposed to again the machine is programmed right the machine doesn't know you the machine can't point out your strengths and weaknesses. Uh, the machine can't sort of phrase things that you don't want to hear in a way that's sort of palatable to you. And it also can't tell you, let's say, uh, like positive things about you that, you know, again, that they, we couldn't possibly know because it's a machine. So there's in that missing that human connection. And, and I like the parallel also to education, right? Because and also in that missing that human connection, you don't get somebody who's really willing to sort of take the time to see what it is that's wrong with your thinking and really wrong with your behavior, right? Which again, I don't know of any apps that are able to do that. Because again, even with the best CBT apps, I mean, what they do is they just kind of like reward you for completing some tasks. Nobody really knows how well you do it. And what we do know about like autodidacts is that they're very few and far between. Very few people can like read a piece of literature, understand the vast majority of it, or perform some sort of task and think, oh, okay, I got this. So, uh, and, you know, the last thing I would say about this is like with something like the CBT thought record, I often teach it to people and people tell me like, oh yeah, this is so simple. Like it totally makes sense. I get it. Then they'll bring it into session the following week and they'll butcher it. They'll, they'll, there'll be a ton of mistakes that I'm not really sure a machine can pick up on. So I really like the parallel between that and education. And just to add on to that as well, there's that absence of connection between a person and, and machine, right? There, there isn't that uh, rapport building. There isn't a feeling of being understood by the other and a feeling of wanting to then uh, maybe uh, let go or be vulnerable and then connect with that particular person. Right. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, again, machines are incredible. And I think at best, you know, statistically, sure that they can optimize for perhaps what may be, you know, a programmed uh, best result for something. But even then that best result may not, may work uh, through objective reasoning, but it may not work subjectively for a particular right. uh, person and, and that absence is important yeah. 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 And then, so yeah, interesting. Right. So, mm -hmm. and then Christian, just going back, right. And in terms mm -hmm. of how your work started, why do you think that this became such a problem? Like, why do you think we became kind of so hardlined where, you know, on the one hand, we had the people who were interested in the humanities and who saw their value. And then on the other hand, we had the Danny Kahnemans of the world who were like, okay, human thinking is tragically flawed, just solely focused on the data. Really nothing else matters. Uh, I mean, it's a long, long history of that conflict um, for I mean, thousands of years, there's been a conflict between 
those two different versions of those two positions, right? And and the most extreme version of of the of the, uh, the let's call, you call it the Kahneman position. I think he's he's an incredibly sophisticated thinker, and he would probably agree with many of the things many of the things we talk we're talking about here uh, because he's smarter than certainly smarter than I am. Um, uh, but Rene Descartes, like in, in sort of Enlightenment thinkers, um, thought that the natural science method um, was superior uh, in every way, not just in, not just in a lot of ways, but in every way. And I would, I would think that AI, at least in the dumb versions of AI, uh, and, and what people call good, good old fashioned AI, uh, mm -hmm. where you think that, um, that human beings, all, all human beings can be reduced to rule following um, and, uh, and, 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 and likelihoods and you know, um, uh, probabilities. I, I, I think mis like underestimates the complexity of humans. And, there, and there, there were some people in the history of philosophy that were um, attuned to that and were good at describing that. And, and, and for me, the, the sort of the, the most interesting and important one is, is Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who was a, was a sort of French philosopher from who wrote 40s and 50s and, um, and, and, and wrote about human perception. And, and to me, sort of describe the question we talked about with, with the middle C 440 Hertz kind of problem mm -hmm. that, that we experience the world in gestalts and, and those gestalts are fundamentally human. And we have had a hard time getting that to just to algorithms predicting probability. Um, uh, and and I, I think there's a place for both. There's a place for behavioral economics. I'm a, I'm a, I, I think it's exciting and interesting and so on. But claiming that that's the model of the world is just stupid um, because it's clearly, obviously, observably not the only thing that goes on. And, and um, yeah, so, so I, I think that this debate about that we, that we see a version of now is an old debate. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons and excitement. Of, you know, what if we could build a machine that could help us in so many ways? Uh, wouldn't that be exciting and and so on and, and everybody that's ever read a science fiction book would you know be dead inside if they weren't sort of you know excited by the prospect that you could that you could make things that would be as sophisticated as us or help us in all kinds of ways mm -hmm. uh, so so i think there's a lot of reasons for why you want to you want to try give it a go uh, you know and what is, who is it who am i to say you, that can't be done. I don't think it can be done, but who am I to tell people, don't experiment, <laughs> don't even try? That's ridiculous. Uh, I, I, I think there's a likelihood for not being able to, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Um, and then of course, there's enormous commercial interest if, it, if you could do it. Uh, and that's why big corporations and military you know, think tanks and so on are, investing in a way that they're not investing in the humanities for sure. Uh, maybe a last thing is that the humanities aren't helping themselves very much these days, right? It's, you know, the, the, the history departments are, are not doing as well as they did before. The English literature department aren't doing as well as they were before because they feel less relevant and they feel 
like insular. They speak their own language to each other. Nobody reads what they're writing. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just not that we haven't been able to explain ourselves very well because we write in tortured kind of strange language that people just get turned off by. Mm -hmm. So I, I think in a way the humanities have painted itself into a corner of irrelevance and, and has to win back the right to having a strong voice um, which is too bad, right? Because don't we need to understand history? I mean, do we understand the Ukraine-Russia conflict only through statistics or do, and capable, how many tanks they have? Or do we need to understand the history between the two, you know, those two pieces of land and those two cultures and those two, you know, don't we need to understand that? You know, <laughs> we need historians and people to understand their literature and their music and their stories and, and so on to, to really make good judgment calls about it beyond right. just pure pure behavioral economics or statistical models or something like that even though we should do that too right and you, uh, sorry just go it, it seems that the answer would be uh, somewhat in the integration of all these different worlds and sort of to come up with an answer from there not just be married to one particular world right right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no yeah so go, yeah go, go, yeah so i just uh, i mean i don't know maybe this is kind of a fruitless thought but i was even thinking just in terms of like mental illness right so if we're considering let's say the conflict with ukraine and russia i mean essentially it's going to boil down to a malignant narcissist right and vladimir putin but if we're talking about just data right and we're saying well you know give him like just a course of cv tree uh, cbt treatment right like you know he has like let's say if he has narcissistic personality disorder let's just put him through that right boom problem solved right well actually it's not that simple so once let's say first off you can get somebody who has narcissistic personality and therapy that's one thing but then the second thing they know what you're gonna give them right so they understand the manual as well as you do so when you tell them like hey we're gonna put you through a course of cognitive behavioral therapy they're gonna read that manual they're gonna think oh i know exactly what this person is gonna do so it's not gonna be too effective mm -hmm. and when we think about those subjective experiences right and those kind of uh on the other hand the throw-ins of therapy what we think of is actually connecting to somebody like that if let's say the goal is treatment here i mean i don't I don't know geopolitically what we should do here, obviously way above, you know, what I get paid for, but I'm just thinking about in terms of like a narcissistic personality disorder. And if we're going to treat this person, it's going to take way more so than the manualized version of therapy. We would need to actually sort of understand his experiences, understand why he's pretty much enacting or acting out some of these insecurities and really connecting with him on a deeper level without at least initially trying to change him. But that's kind of what manualized treatment is, right? It's how do we change this person? How do we take him from, okay, he sucks now to a much better person, <laughs> you know, to a much better person in the kind of near future so you could start harming people. But again, with narcissism, that's the thing that they resist the most. They resist change. So, I mean, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I can see like how data in that case would be limited. Just to add to that, um, I, before speaking to what you said, Christian, about the humanities being sort of painted in a, in, into a corner, I wonder if even just the nature of this conversation or even other conversations, let's say on the internet or through podcasting, I wonder if that's sort of our working answer for that. Because you, you get these nuanced conversations different perspectives, even even meta sort of conversations about being able to integrate this perspective and that perspective and to sense make from that. And I, I wonder uh, what kind of impact that can have over time. Uh, 
there's not just us obviously podcasting so many different podcasts uh, having these kinds of conversations i wonder if yeah if there if it can cause any sort of a ripple effect you know uh it's a little bit of a wishful thinking but um yeah i i don't know there's a lot of levels of thought that for example i personally wouldn't have been exposed to if i didn't listen to conversations on the internet of course yeah there were there were books i read youtube videos i listened to of my own accord you know even uh, you, you're right there aren't a lot of people who are autodidacts who are interested in sort of pursuing and uh, learning things on their own but no, no but uh, can i just be clear on that so it's not that i'm not saying that there aren't people who are interested i'm just saying there aren't that many people who are that great at it meaning that they think they might understand the literature but you we actually need people to tell us like hey you're wrong that you misunderstood to distill you the actually... knowledge yeah right. subject matter experts yeah. i understand what you're saying right, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. um so yeah, I, I wonder if th there's still hope as far as um, people still having these these kinds of conversations, and hopefully that when that level of thought gets exposed to people, hopefully then they can not like for example, as one example, not be married to one particular point or married to uh, the world of uh, statistics, let's say, or the world of pure uh, uh, human intuition. Um, yeah, and yeah. You're, you were going to... No, no, that, that, that's a great thought. Yeah. 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 In, the, in the book, I try to say that there are many types of of thinking, right? I mean, there's, there's objective, which is things you can count and, and um, things you can observe and test empirically, um, which, of course, exists. Um, then there's subjective, which is inner, in a way, right? If I... If I if, if you hurt your toe, I can't, how, who am I to say it's not hurting, right? It's, a, it's, an, it's an inner experience. And, and I think that's what you're thinking about with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy in all the, that world and try to help out in that. But there's also a third kind of knowledge, which is intersubjective. It's between us. And mm -hmm. we can feel, you know, we know that other people know uh, something and we can understand we, they un, can understand that we know. And, and, and that sort of a dynamic relationship between each other and between us and the place we live and the people we are around and so on is, is a real kind of knowledge that we have. Um, and that is something you can study and historians have done that and art historians and people that look at music or, you know, they can understand that there is this sort of intersubjective or third kind of knowledge between us. And, and if we forget that and we don't study that, but study all of it through a subjective or an objective or just subjective and objective without the relationship to, I suppose, culture, we, we, we missed the point. And all we have really is each other and each other's emotional states and our relationship to the places we live. And that seems important to me. Um, and can you count that? Sure, but you don't get the full picture. Uh, can you accord for can you can you say that's all about that's all subjective no it's not it's between us and and I, and I think when we forget that we kind of our answers become bland shallow hype, hyperbolic um and and uh and I, I that was what the book was about that book was about was that third kind of knowledge and there are ways you can be analytical about it. There are ways you can analyze it in an organized way, which was 
what I tried to describe as well. Um, oh, can so you tell us a little bit about that? Well, let's call it analytical empathy, right? Mm -hmm. That 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 empathy. When we describe empathy, it's as if it's just feeling. Um, but you can you can collect data about a group of people or a place by observing it carefully, uh, taking notes in whatever way you want to take notes, but capturing empirical activity among people. And then you can take that and and through there are through theoretical models in the in the world of humanities and social science, there are just being a human and, and, and looking at it, you can synthesize what's going on beyond just feeling it, beyond just uh, counting it, but where you where you empirically org organize an observation about, about it. And that's what great anthropologists would do, that's what great historians would do, is to put together a picture of that third, that relationship between people, relationship between people and places. And in the book, I call it analytical empathy, um, which is more than just, I feel you, man, kind of uh, uh, attitudes, and more than just 76% feel, uh, feel uh, slightly depressed in a survey, <laughs> something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more than that. And, and, and that, but the important thing is you can be analytical about it. You can be organized. Uh, you can be empirical, observational about it. And that's what I and that's what I've been trying to. That's what I made a living off, and that's what the companies I built were about. Uh, we're trying to understand human phenomena in an organized manner, not in a in just a sort of having opinions about it, um, and also try to undermine systematically undermine your own bias through observation. So by waiting, by instead of just having opinions, then suspending judgment for long enough to try to understand people that have a different experience than you, that live, came from different circumstances, that lived a different place in the world, and that were exposed to different impulses and different kinds of music or something like that. And, and I think there's a, you can undermine your own bias and your own worldview by doing that. And I think that's very important to understand each other, but you can also understand their worldview or parts of it and you will never fully understand what it's like to grow up in Kenya or Indonesia or Ukraine but you can give it a go and you can be organized about it and I think great social psychologists do that I think great anthropologists do that um, when it's at its best mm -hmm. and it's a skill set that we all need I mean if you want to make something if you want to make a cognitive behavioral therapy app you need to understand the experience and the world of the people using it otherwise you'll have a uh, uh, a retention rate of 3%, which is a failure rate of 97, right? Um, yeah. And so, so what we're saying then is that we have these theoretical frameworks of, let's say, human behavior, human thought, uh, let's say human emotion, right? And then what we're doing is when we're collecting data, we're trying to see where, how we can piece that data together to fit those particular frameworks to sort of understand, okay, why is this particular culture, let's say, acting or thinking or feeling this way, right? And what do we know about, well, we just know about all cultures, right? Like, how do they fit into that broader base of knowledge? Is that it? And the differences between them, right? right? Mm -hmm. there's a there's this great american journalist called caro who wrote about lyndon b johnson 
um, and, and over eight, 10 years, like extreme detail oriented. And he didn't understand his childhood and he didn't understand his, Lyndon B. Johnson's relationship to DC. Mm -hmm. He did two things that were so remarkable. One thing is he took a sleeping bag and he went to the place where Caro grew up and he slept there for two nights in order to understand the sounds. Mm -hmm. What did it sound like when you, when, you know, when you listened and you went to bed as a, as a, you know, as Lyndon B. Johnson's mom and, 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 and Johnson himself. And you would understand the extreme isolation and loneliness through the, the auditory, the soundscape, the sonic uh, experience of being there. And you could never have done that had you not taken a sleeping bag and, and, and gone there yourself. Right. Another, another thing he did, which is extraordinary. So he didn't understand the, 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 the relationship Lyndon B. Johnson had to, to the, the city of, of DC. And then he realized that every morning, Lyndon B. Johnson would go from his little hotel or where he lived to Capitol Hill. And he would be known for running in the end of that trip um, every morning. And he didn't understand that, but he then did it. He did the same thing. He went at the same time. He did it many times, but at a certain point, he did it at the same time as Lyndon B. Johnson did. And when you do it at that time on the morning, the sun goes up behind Capitol Hill. And imagine mm -hmm. the marble, it was just shining. And you could, and, and you know, of course he ran. Of course he would, his, the spring in his step would be different because he just saw just pure potential, pure beauty of, of the place he would end up, you know, working in and changing and, and being part of. So, so you put yourself into the situation analytically, right? You put yourself carefully into the situation of others in order to understand their world. Um, and, and, you know, he's, he was a journalist, uh, but it really is about listening and observing really carefully. Anthropologists know how to do that. People know how to do that. Um, he, he happened to be a journalist and a very, very good one. Um, but extraordinary one, but, but he, so he knew that the, all the data he had collected by reading every single page ever written by, by, or in all the archives of Johnson, it only snapped into place when he, when he heard the sounds at night in the hill country of Texas and walked the walk of Lyndon B. Johnson at the, you know, so I, I think that's an extraordinary example of analytical empathy. Uh, and an understanding of other people in their world in a different time or a different place. Yeah. Wow. And then would we say that that's sort of the point of literature? Because, you know, we talked about philosophy as a way to reason through the data. But what, we, what, we, what I think we would say is that in terms of what literature has to offer, it's a deeper understanding of the data, the, the actual subjective or intersubjective or both, right? Subjective and intersubjective experiences of the actual participants of the data in which you're collecting right. or of which you're collecting, right? Yeah. Can you understand the situation with Russia now without reading the books that were written there? Mm -hmm. I don't think you can really, really deeply understand it and empathize with it unless you were fairly careful with reading their stories. And will you fully understand it if you're from somewhere else? No, you won't, but you'll get a little closer. Um, and I think we owe it to each other to do our best uh, by being careful and organized around how we observe each other.
and just shut up for a moment. Just not judge, just look and listen uh, for, for a change. Um, I think we would understand each other a little better and there would be less animosity and antagonism and conflict um, if, we, if, we, if we really tried to do that. Um, I love that. And so, and concretely, right, when we think of sense-making, how, how will we sort of define that and what sort of concrete steps does it actually entail? Hmm. Yeah, so there's a whole list in the book, but I can boil it down to, well, let, let's imagine you're a historian and you want to understand the Tsar, that seems relevant right now, the last Tsar of Russia, you would, whose world, I think, is different from ours. Mm -hmm. What a historian would do was they would take the writing about it, about the Tsar, you would take images, you would take artifacts, you take, uh, you would go to the places that the Tsar lived and through these different kinds of data set, of, the, of data, and th that is data, you would try to create a picture of what that might have been like. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you can't add up artifacts uh, diets, like what did, what, did he, what did he eat or what did they eat around him? Uh, the, the description, the, the newspapers and the, you know, the things that, the clippings of, of, of what was written at that time, you can't add that up in a spreadsheet. You can't, you can't take it. It's not a uniform data set like numbers would be, um, but you have to piece it together. And that piecing together is sense-making. And we can do that historically in literature and music but also in, in our sort of the little, the world of people uh, and, and our relationship to each other. You can, you, can, you can do that and we can, humans can do that. And, and I, I'm trying to argue that the humanities is the best training ground for that. We, we know how to train people in doing that. And we should do, we should, we should treasure that and we should protect it and we should invest in it. We should, we should massively invest in it, in, in my opinion. And it always annoys me when people say that's not relevant. Uh, you know, don't study that. Um, don't don't do that because because data. <laughs> you know, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so so I think sense making is this sort of piecing together of data, empirical evidence that you can't add up as if it's in a spreadsheet. But but we can empathize it. We can we can empathize with it. We can understand it. Uh, because we are humans, we happen to be humans as well, and and we can not fully get it, but we can try our best. Uh, All right. in, in the... I love that. And so what that, again, going back to mental health, what that makes me think of is the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual of, the Diagnostic Manual of Statistics, right? And uh, mental disorders. So the idea there is that we think that if we know a cluster of symptoms, we automatically understand what the person's experiences are like. And you actually don't. So if let's say take depression, which is, you know, probably in terms of like simplicity, the most easily understood mental illness. So with depression, we could say, okay, well, this person has low moods, changes in appetite, changes in sleeping, uh, difficulty finding joy, a sense of hopelessness, yada, yada, right? So you can sort of understand what that feels like, but when you're telling the person, oh, okay, you know, it seems like you're depressed, uh, here's kind of the treatment for you, you're not actually getting at that specific individual experience, right? You're not actually understanding, okay, what does it feel like when you wake up and you're feeling hopeless? What do you actually think about when you're feeling hopeless? What are the things that you do? What are the things that you don't do? What are the things that, let's say, you tell yourself when you don't do what you think you're supposed to do? What is it like throughout the day, right? Well, again, what do you think about? 
How do you see yourself throughout the day? How what do you see relationships like? Yes, right. Sure. And how do you see the world around you throughout the day? But none of that is sort of understood. And that again, going back to you know quantitative thinking, none of that is understood in terms of like, okay, well, he beats or she meets four out of the seven symptoms. Therefore, she can be diagnosed with mental, you know, uh, major depressive disorder. That doesn't really get at the experience. And I think a lot of times now, even thinking it through about these apps, I think that's what's probably, if not most problematic, one of the major issues with them is that the, the app will never understand your experience outside of those, let's say four out of seven or five out of seven symptoms. And I think for a lot of people, that's probably not enough. It's like, why am I talking to something that really doesn't get what I'm truly thinking, feeling and experiencing? Yeah. I was wondering, uh, Christian, are there any, this might be maybe not the right way to phrase this question, but I'll give it a shot. Um, would you say, are there any sorts of mindsets or assumptions that may go along with sense making? Like one, for example, that comes to mind is maybe always assume that uh, the other per. let's say if you're dealing with another person, they, they always have some, uh, something to offer or, or, or something along those lines. Like, uh, that their inner world has value, that they believe in their whatever is true for them as much as you believe in what's true for you. Are there any sorts of uh, things that go along with sense making that uh, may be useful for our audience to um, assume or think about? Uh, of course, I mean, a, a place of care and kindness is a good start. Um, but sometimes, you know, I'm writing a new book called How to Pay Attention, and I have a chapter on momentary relativism. So I'm not a relativist in the sense that everything go, anything goes, but, but, there's a, but if you wanna understand someone else, you have to try to arrest your own assumptions and your own judgment. You have to assume that their world makes sense in a way for them for good reasons. Mm. Uh, and before you, start, um, before you start concluding that Vladimir Putin is an evil man, you try to understand where he's at. And that doesn't mean we can't judge him afterwards and we can judge him harshly uh, if you, if, if, but, but for a moment, be relativist, be a relativist and, and try to understand someone else's world and how that makes sense and how they answered important questions to themselves about what's, what's the point of, of being here in the first place and what our relationship to each other and the place we live. And I call it momentary because you have to at some point conclude and you have to, you know, at some point you can say, I think human rights is a good thing. And I think we should sell, send our daughters to school. And uh, so if you, if, you, if you go to Afghanistan and you are just a relativist, uh, then, then anything goes. And I, and I can't do that. Um, but, but for a moment, just try to listen, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and, and arrest your own easy answers and, and um, quick judgments uh, of, of others. And that's an attitude. And I think the best observers have that. Um, actually in that book, I'm trying to describe a series of masters of, of observation and they come from different worlds. Some of them in, in fine arts, some of them are in anthropology, some of them are in you know, nature writing, uh, the, lots, of, lots of different places where it comes from. And it's a particular attitude to observing the world, which I think is assuming that there is a meaningful world that you're looking at and that other people have, and you need to be organized when you look at it, but also sort of you try to find what, 
how does this make sense to them? Not how do I impose my own views on it, but how does this make sense to others? And that that's momentary relativism or analytical empathy or whatever we've called it during this interview. Um, that there's something glorious about their world and 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 something that can contribute to your world and undermine maybe you know toxic things and simple things in your own assumptions. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I have something that comes to mind as well. Uh, for instance. Whenever whoever is the president, let's say in the United States, whatever particular year it is, everyone, uh, there's always a group of people that have a particular opinion, let's say like, oh, this guy is uh, not doing the job correctly, or this guy's dumb, or this or that, or this person's insane. And I always thought that that, that was also very like a very simple way to sort of look at things. Uh, even if you cited one specific thing they did, let's say you went a, a level higher, and there's some rationalization involved. I still feel like there are so many variables that aren't taken into consideration. Like one, what would you do if you were in that position? One, two, uh, how many people are, how many things do you have to weigh? What's the net good versus the net bad? Maybe no matter what, you're, you'll be the bad guy, no matter what you pick, but you have to pick the lesser of two evils. That might be a consideration. How many people do you have to appease for uh, maybe in order for a, a long-term goal to occur? In what sense do I mean that? Maybe uh, maybe you have a, a investors, I, I, I'm not, by the way, I'm being so general right now. I don't have a specific example to cite, but say, uh, and by the way, it's important to be specific, by the way. So I'm already making an error. I'm, I'm actually not at the highest level that you should be, uh, even though I'm trying to you know describe this process. But yes, um, yeah. What if uh, there's something you need to uh, you need to appease this particular person so you can meet some sort of long term goal? So then you end up picking a result that for most people does not seem pleasurable, but may then lead to some sort of long term good. And the people who are you know in the process of experiencing that decision you're making don't see it. So therefore, they blame you and don't take into consideration all these different variables that go into right. your decision making. You know, like it's very easy to say, for example, Joe Biden is dumb or something. Oh, like have that. You, I don't know that, to be honest. Have you guys ever seen the movie? I think it's I hope this is the right name. Have you ever guys ever seen the movie 13 Days about Kennedy's decision during the Cuban Missile Crisis? No. Yeah. Oh, have you seen? Oh, yeah. Right. It's a, yeah. do you know, right. And do you remember how complicated it was? Where so we had like the Joint Chiefs of Staff who were pretty much like, okay, Kennedy's a pussy. You know, he's gonna no. They literally that, that verbatim. This is not even me. This is not a misquote. It was literally like Kennedy's a pussy. You know, we got to get him out of here because what's gonna happen is he's gonna get us all nuked. Like that was the understanding, right? Wow. So all of the Republicans were like, you know, fuck Kennedy. We really need to find a way to replace him because again, he's gonna get us killed. But if you go through, like, if you watch the entire movie, highly recommended. Uh, so you go through his decision-making process. And this was a guy, by the way, who had continual ulcers, who had so much fucking stress during this point, who didn't sleep at all, right? But as he's going through the decision-making process, he's always questioning himself. And he's always asking, okay, how do we know that this is what Khrushchev actually believes, right? How do we know that this letter that he's sending us is not actually being interpreted in the context of what happened yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. So yesterday, one of our, uh, like, uh, one of our, what was it? Um, one of our planes got shot down, right? And it was Russia who did it. It was the USSR. And so how 
do we know that we're not misinterpreting his letter as being more aggressive than it is based on the incident yesterday, right? But, and that's why I like what you bring up because the idea is unless you're behind the scenes and it's interesting though, because even if you are with these joint chiefs of staff, right? They actually kind of were behind the scenes and they're like, no, 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 no. They're like, he, he's a coward. We got to get him out of here. He's terrible, right? But again, when you actually think deeply about what this person is trying to do and what they're experiencing, you'll often see that maybe not all presidents, but I would hope for the most part, most presidents, they do have like the best sort of best intent for the country, because I mean, they're at the very least trying to keep their jobs. And that's what the movie showed about Kennedy, that he was really trying hard. And of course, at the end of the day, he succeeded because he avoided nuclear war. Uh, but the point is that like, yeah, when you think about it, you often don't think about how difficult it is for the people who are making these choices, but you're right. Yeah. So I think taking things like that into consideration helps you at least have more empathy, at least in this particular context towards leaders. But if you if you then extend that to just giving that sort of benefit of the doubt to other people for whatever decisions they make, that that could take away so much conflict. I would I would love it if everyone would totally get into properly, you know, sense making Uh, that would, you know, ideally, that would be great. Uh, I definitely know that there are people who are doing it more and more, but yeah, that's definitely a goal. Yeah. And just curious, before we start wrapping up, Christian, in terms of where it's actually been applied, right? Can we talk about some of the fields where sense making has been effective? I think everywhere. Um, I, I think it's going on everywhere. I hope it's going on right now. Um, and I think maybe that 13 days is, an, is a good example of someone with extraordinary skill right. to try to understand someone else in order for, you know, thank you for, not, <laughs> for, for doing that in a way. And cynicism is the opposite of that, right? Cynicism of just, just um, judging someone, having cynic, cynical cynical um, um, attitudes and approaches to things uh, seem to be toxic to to mm-hmm. really understanding each other but it's used for uh, it's used for making you know in the, in the in the corporate world in the in the world of sort of uh, uh, making product and services and so on it's being used to uh, by great leaders but also by sort of processes to try to understand what it's like to be a customer. Um, I think it's used in the hospital and sort of healthcare sector to try to understand what it's like to be a doctor or a nurse or a patient or a family where you've just been told that a family member has cancer. Uh, It's used in the world of social psychology and psychology to understand what's it like to be lonely? Uh, What's it like to be depressed beyond just checking for a five out of a list of seven or whatever you you said with with you know would be the symptoms mm-hmm. um it's, it's used it's used everywhere um and uh and it should be but you can be you know we should look for though the signs that we're uh, getting away from that and 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 one of them would be thinking that data or you know whatever you want to call it can take over all of that uh, or right. that ability and, and um, we should also be worried about cynicism and easy answers and ideology, really, like quick ideology where, where you just judge people based on a, on a fairly simple view of the world. And I sort of have 
almost like I go into hives when it when when somebody is too ideological. It's it's it just seems like the opposite of trying to understand what's going on. Um, so it's so it's everywhere. Thankfully, uh, I think we can be more organized. I think we can be better trained in it. I think uh, we could we could do it more. But thankfully, it's it's something we do every day um, uh, in 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 our lives. So so it's hap it's happening everywhere. Uh, and we should worry when it's being undermined. Absolutely. I love that. All right. Great way to end off. Alan, final questions before we go. Oh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where could we find you? Well, um, thankfully, there are ways of searching today <laughs> that are more sophisticated than I can say. But but I've given a lot of, I've written a lot and given a lot of sort of lectures about um, these topics. And I'm finishing, very close to finishing a book called How to Pay Attention, uh, mm -hmm. which is about how attention works and the people that are good at it. Uh, and hopefully that'll come out in 2023, early 2023. Uh, mm -hmm. I hope it'll be, I hope it'll be a good book. At least I'm, I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing the best I can to, to write a book about observation and analytical empathy. Um, and some of the people that are, have been remarkably good at it. Um, yeah. Excellent. Uh, oh, Christian, what's your, what's your website? I have a website that's just my surname that you pronounce so well in the beginning, mm -hmm. .com. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm part of a company called Red Associates, which is a company that has this practice at its core. Uh, it's basically a sense-making company um, that works for all kinds of cool companies and organizations around the world. Mm -hmm. um, you, can have, you can have a look at you can have a look at that that as well all right excellent awesome. thank you so much thank for coming you. on thank this you. was great thank you i'm happy you like it i enjoyed the conversation very much i'm glad talk <laughs> to you soon christian be well Bye. all right first of all time flew i know that was way yeah, over an hour it did. It it was really awesome. did. Mm -hmm. so everybody if you want to follow us you can follow us at seize the moment podcast uh, at facebook instagram tiktok and at C's underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. Hit the bell. <laughs> and everyone, thank you so much for watching. See you next time.